Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Today's episode is an interview I did with Nita Prose about her new book, The Maid. Nita has worked in publishing for many years. Uh, She began working as an intern and now works as the vice president and editorial director at Simon & Schuster in Toronto, Canada. The Maid is a uh, murder mystery taking place at a upscale hotel. Um... And I had so much fun chatting with her, just sort of talking about how the book came to be and, you know, what inspired it. And for her, working as an industry professional in publishing, you know, then kind of coming to the other side of the writing element of it. So I really hope you enjoy this uh, episode and interview that I did with her. If you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And you can always email Joe, Emma, and me at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Um, I think that's everything. You know, it's a quick, short Monday. We're in March. It's March already. Fun times. Fun times. Um... Yeah, so I hope you all enjoyed this interview I did with Anita Prose on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Nita, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Jill. I'm very happy to be here. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to your new book, The Maid? Sure. Well, The Maid features Molly, who is a socially awkward hotel roommate whose world gets turned upside down when she stumbles across an infamous guest who's very, very dead in his hotel room bed. And this is a book about what it means to be the same as everyone else, and yet entirely different. And I think as a whodunit, it maybe is a little bit unusual because the mystery can only be solved through a connection to the human heart. I loved that um, it's it's a mystery, it's a whodunit, but in a lot of ways, it's really a character study of Molly and how she views the world. So how did you go about kind of creating this character? Well, she came to me really like a bolt out of the blue. So in London um, in 2019, I was at the London Book Fair because, of course, I work in publishing and I was staying at a London area hotel and I stepped out of my hotel for a bit, came back and I completely startled the roommate who was cleaning it. And I remember her stepping back into a shadowy corner. And the embarrassing part is that I'd left my track pants in a tangled mess on my bed fool, fool that I am. And she held those in her hands. And I looked at her and I thought, oh my goodness, it is such an intimate and invisible job to be a roommate. You know, she'd been cleaning my room day after day. So she knew a lot about me, but I knew nothing about her. 
So that was just one of those funny little incidents, not very long. It's just one of those things that sort of sticks in your brain. And that's what happened. And then a few days later, I was on my plane ride home. And that is when I heard Molly's voice. It really did come to me. It was clean and crisp and precise. And I grabbed the napkin under my drink because I didn't have any paper. And I started to write the prologue in a single verse in Molly's voice. And even then, I, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing, I, but actually I had just begun my debut novel. So that is how her voice came to me. I love it. And I, I liked it that you used the word precise um, because that very much describes Molly. She's precise in her job. She's very precise in, I think, her language, which I, I like. Um, and that both works to her advantage, but also to her disadvantage when it comes to this story, which is, um, we obviously don't want to spoil anything, but <laughs> the way the story unfolds and, and that precision is, was a fun read because you're not really sure where everything is going. Yeah. I think one of my challenges in writing a mystery was how do you innovate the genre? I mean, I love mysteries, but you know, there have been so, so many great, epically, phenomenally masterful, you know, mystery writers. So entering that genre for me was like, okay, I need to do something different. I want to do something original. And so the first thing that occurred to me was creating a blend of genres, you know, as you just said, having a very character led, um, you know, voice driven um, sort of journey of the spirit where Molly shows growth from beginning to, to end. It is a novel that is that sort of building's roman. On the other hand, it is also a whodunit. <laughs> um, so that was one of my solutions. Now, the other thing about um, Molly as a sort of detective, she is precise and imprecise at the same time, right? She believes so firmly that her perspective on things is the perspective. It is the only way to see. Um, and, you know, there I was kind of playing with the Sherlock trope, you know, in the classic Sherlock Holmes story, we follow Sherlock into a room, we see everything, we don't understand everything, but Sherlock does, and then he explains it for us, and then we're like, oh, I get it. And Molly is the exact opposite. She enters the room, explains everything to us, gets it all wrong, and we, as readers, have to become Sherlock. We have to try to understand what it is that actually happened because unfortunately or fortunately, Molly's point of view, uh, she misses things. <laughs> she she does. Yes. She does. And yes. you know <laughs> I yeah, there's there's it's as a reader, it's always um it's always kind of fun to have information that the character doesn't, or, and perhaps in this book, it's more like picking up on context clues that, um, that Molly doesn't and, and having that and sort of like waiting to see, will she figure it out or will she not? Um, so that, uh, there is something about that, especially with a whodunit where, you know, you're kind of playing along at the same time. And there's sort of a satisfaction where like, oh, wait a minute. And Molly isn't quite there yet, it, which, which made it more, uh, yeah, it was like a little bit more interactive <clears throat> as a reader in that way. 
Yeah, exactly. And for me, that's something really important too, as a writer, the kind of books that I gravitate to and love are ones where the writer gives just enough, but not too much. Um, so my goal with this book was to create just enough, but to allow the reader to participate in the experience of seeing as Molly and also of, you know, things like the setting, you know, how much information does the reader need in order to create um, and complete a picture of that Regency Grand Hotel, this five-star luxury boutique hotel? How much do they need to start participating and filling in them in with the details in their own minds about what it looks like? And I, so, you know, that was sort of a principle that I applied to all kinds of things, not only the plot, the character, um, but the setting. Um. <clears throat> it's interesting because there's a common theme that kind of runs throughout about making assumptions and Molly frequently sort of um, throws out that line about how if you assume <laughs> he makes an ass out of you and me, which is proven true multiple times, both, you know, by her and, and others. Um, so it's interesting that you talk about sort of like leaving things for people to figure out <laughs> in that way to like assume themselves what they think um, the hotel looks like. Yeah, well, there's two things going on there, right? There's the whodunit element, and it's our job as, as readers to go through and try to figure out and pick up all those breadcrumbs in any mystery. Um, we pick up those clues and try to figure it out. Um, so, you know, that's sort of one element. Yeah, yeah so, it, it, yeah. And then in terms of assumptions, you know, I try to give the reader some ground there. Um, I try to challenge their assumptions in all kinds of ways. So, you know, Molly actually warns us at the beginning not to assume. And it turns out that in the end, we kind of do. <laughs> and hopefully there are some surprises that, that make us realize we're not so different from Molly after all. Exactly. Exactly. There are for sure. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Sherlock and I want to ask um, about something I've seen in some of the reviews when I was doing research and, and after I read the book in, I've seen this applied to Sherlock too, where it's a question of, is he on the autistic spectrum? And I know people have brought that up about Molly as well. And you never, there's nothing in the book overt about it. And I'm just, I'm wondering if that um, was in your mind at all, if it was intentional or you just sort of had this character who, acted in this way who may or may not be on the spectrum? Well, I think in Molly's particular circumstances, you know, she's grown up in a life of pretty abject poverty. Um, and I'm not certain that she would be able ever to get any kind of diagnosis in her particular circumstance. So there is that. And, you know, there are a lot of people in this circumstance. <laughs> yeah. Um, apart from that, there was a formative experience that I had many years ago before I became book editor. Uh, I worked with, um, I worked in high school and I taught um, high school students with special needs. And it was really an interesting time because, you know, I went as, in as a teacher and in so many ways I came out as a student. Um, and one of the things that I'll never forget um, was taking my, my students on field trips. You know, in the safety of the classroom, you know, there are all kinds of labels that allowed educators to, to lead the right way and to, um, you know, just really teach in a way that was individualized. But when we went out in the world and I got to see how the world dealt with my students, I was abjectly shocked 
at how they were treated. And that was a hard lesson, but the really um, great thing that happened and that I got to witness was how adaptable, strong, resilient, um, and brave these kids were in the face of so much scrutiny and prejudice. And that was never lost on me. And I wanted to give Molly some of those qualities, but I also wanted the reader to be in a position of not making assumptions from her about her from the beginning. I wanted you to enter the book and live as Molly, to see from behind her eyes, to live in her skin, to experience the world as her without preconceptions, without assumptions about who she is. And most importantly, the primary assumption is that she is different from you. When in fact, she's the same in so many fundamental ways. And that's what I want the reader to be left with. Excellent. I love that answer. Um, so we're going to, I'm going to try not spoil anything. Obviously it's a mystery, yeah. but whenever <laughs> I know it's always a challenge. Always I know because you know what we want to talk about and we can't. I do. I know we can't. <laughs> we saw it when we were recording. Um, <laughs> um, but whenever I talk to mystery writers, I'm always curious about their process. So you, you talked about how share her voice just kind of like you, you saw the maid at the hotel and then this voice just came to you and you started writing did you have an outline? Did you know where things were going when you started? Um, for sure. I consider myself a sort of what I call a tentpole writer. And that means that, you know, some of the major plot points uh, in the architecture of the, of the narrative, I knew from early on. And I wouldn't let myself write until I had those drivers to, to lead me on my way. And that's something that, you know, keeps me very motivated as a writer to know where I'm going, but not know how on earth I'm going to get there. You know, writing is a very solitary and strange pursuit, and you do need a sort of internal and external motivation to keep you going. And those temples kept me going. Okay, I know this is going to happen. How on earth am I going to, how do I use all of these tools, these characters, this world, and get us to there. And now we'll take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsor. No one knows what you're looking for in a doctor better than you. And no one's better at giving you the tools to find the perfect doctor than ZocDoc. The people who created ZocDoc found the major pain points in healthcare, all the things that weren't working, and said enough. And they made booking a great doctor surprisingly pain-free. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. Read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews, and see what other real humans had to say about their visit. So when you walk into that doctor's office, you're set up to see someone in your network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com, choose a time slot, and whether you want to see the doctor in person or do a video visit. And just like that, you're booked. Find the doctor that is right for you and book an appointment that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I'm one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find and book a doctor. In this chaotic world of healthcare, let ZocDoc be your trusted guide to find a quality doctor in a way that is surprisingly pain-free. With ZocDoc, you can get your docs in a row. Go to ZocDoc.com slash ProBookNerds and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash ProBookNerds. ZocDoc.com slash ProBookNerds. 
I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that you work in publishing, you've worked in publishing for a very long time, starting as an intern, I think I read on your website and now you're very high up at Simon and Schuster Canada. Did you always want to write or, you know, if not, like what, what made you sort of want to come to this side of the business other than just having this very clear voice come to you in the character of Molly? Well, I would say that, you know, all editors do write, but they don't necessarily write in the way that readers think they write. (laughs) So that's the first thing. We write cover copy like crazy. We write presentations. We write sales pitches. We write all kinds of things. Um, The other thing about my work in particular is that as an editor, I've also done a lot of ghostwriting. So I've worked with celebrities and public figures um, in order to help them tell their stories on the page. Uh, So I always knew that, you know, I enjoyed doing that work in the nonfiction realm. Um, And I had a hunch that, you know, one day I would turn my hand to a novel. But when I got this particular idea, it was just called to me so much that I really did want to try it out. And, you know, what was that experience like already having the knowledge of what publishing is like? Did that, did you find it more challenging knowing how things worked in the other I am nodding right now. That's why she's laughing. (laughs) I am nodding. I could not nod any harder. So the, the reason why I'm nodding like a maniac, Jill, is because, you know, so many people think, oh, well, you're in publishing. It must have been easy. Oh my goodness. Let me just tell you that when you are in publishing and you know a lot of agents and publishers, the most terrifying thing is to admit that you've written a manuscript because there's a sort of internal and sometimes external eye roll that comes along with the divulging of such information. Um, And, you know, then you have to face all of your colleagues, you know, in perpetuity if they reject your manuscript. And that is, you know, it's not like you can walk away and just never have to face those people again, okay? So my situation had me terrified. And when I say I was terrified, Jill, here's how terrified. When I was writing, I did not tell my family. I did not tell my partner. I did not tell my friends. And the last people on earth I would have ever breathed a word to was anyone in my industry. So I completed the entire manuscript without telling a soul. And when I was waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning to do this, you know, my partner would be like, well, what do you like? You got a lot of work to do. Like, why? Oh, you know, I'm just trying a new routine. Yeah, I got a lot of work to do. These are really great hours to to get a lot of editing done, et cetera. And it was only after I'd finished the entire draft that I admitted what I was doing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, my gosh, that... (laughs) Uh, I'm fine. No problems uh, here. I'm just fine. (laughs) I mean, no, I, I, I'm a writer too. And just the idea of like, yeah, waking up early and not being able to explain that to my spouse and just being like, Oh, you know, whatever it's work. (laughs) Like I feel, yeah, that would be a challenge. That would be a challenge. And like, yeah. (laughs) Um, and you know, it's interesting because we've, We've interviewed on this podcast over the year, other publishing professionals who have gone on to write novels and they have decided to publish under a pen name. Did that ever occur to you? Is that something you 
considered? Um, well, you, you know, my last name is Pronovo. So, you know, um, in, in my workplace and elsewhere, a lot of people have always just called me Prose because my last name is unpronounceable and even more difficult to spell. So um, that's sort of been a nickname. So I took that on as my pen name, but you know, it's, you know, it's not as though I'm hiding my true identity and no, I, I decided I didn't want to do that, that I, you know, cause eventually you're going to be, unless you're Elena Ferrante, you're going to be found out. <laughs> that's, that's fair. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. You can only, yeah. There's maybe like, yeah, her and then like Thomas Pynchon are probably like the only ones who can get away with that. And yeah. they've been doing it for so long. Yeah, that and just barely get away with barely. it. Barely. Right? I mean, we have a <laughs> fairly good idea of who these folks might be, but <laughs> that's all right. That's a, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned that, um, you have always enjoyed, um, reading mysteries and you mentioned Sherlock. And personally, I got a lot of Agatha Christie in this, which, which I love. Is that, was she sort of a, a big inspiration for you too? Massive inspiration. What I love about, well, there are so many things I love about <laughs> Agatha Christie. I mean, I could go on for a day. But her ability to nail a character in just a few words, oh my goodness, that and how she can use, um, uh, you know, a locked room in order to create explosive tension and character dynamics that become so uh, crisp and clean and full of, of machinations. Um, so she really was a master. So yes, she was definitely one of my influences. And then I would say, you know, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Entirely different book, not a mystery at all. Something the UK would call uplit or in North America, you know, um, feel good fiction. You know, the, the sort of a book that is characterized by a journey of the spirit and that really leads with hope. Hope night might not exist throughout the entirety of the book, but we do know that we're going to end there. And those were a couple of formative influences. And then I would say, you know, if you have ever seen the film Knives Out, there was something of that world um, and that sort of um, funky, fun mysteriousness that I wanted to capture. And maybe a smattering of the board game Clue as a sort of nod to my childhood. Uh, yes, I can see all of those. And it, I was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I actually, I love Knives Out. I definitely see that. And who doesn't love Clue? Um, I once spent an entire summer playing Clue with my, my best friend. There's only two of us. There's only like the game goes fairly quickly when there's only two of you, we would just play like rounds and rounds of Clue for hours in the summer. Um, and I also, while I was reading, I don't know if you watched the HBO show White Lotus, which takes oh. place of course. Yeah. So like that hotel element of, of the different staff, um, interacting with guests that was also I was like okay I can this all feels good I like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well hotels are fascinating right and I think now that we've gone through a couple of years where perhaps many and most of us have not frequented them quite so often um you know it gives us a chance to see them in a new way for me I find them absolutely magnificent and strange places you know hotels are a place that create a facade for the guest that we can, if we are guests, luxuriate in, even if we just enter the lobby. But, you know, it, they are so full of dirty little secrets. And there's a whole other world um, where the, you know, the laborers who are creating that illusion for our benefit 
are propping it up with their own work, with really, really hard work in the case of a maid or a dishwasher or, you know, any of those people who are, you know, washing the laundry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that world fascinates me because it's sort of, um, it's this microcosm of upstairs, downstairs, and perhaps in many ways of other hierarchies in our society. No, that's very true. Yeah, there's, um, you know, because Molly works with all of these other people who work at the hotel and including, I love the character of Juan. It's just so delightful. And um, I, I do appreciate that you did sort of flesh out all of these other workers who work there in various roles. And um, it's not, and again, like, yeah, seeing the hotel through their point of view, not that of the guests, because we know what that's like as guests, but seeing things from that other perspective was, um, I think, a good way of, of showing that world. Yes. And I think White Lotus did that beautifully. <laughs> very, very, yes, they did. Well. <laughs> they also did. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm curious now that you've, you know, written this novel and introduced this wonderful character, do you plan on going forward with more novels? And in particular, is Molly coming back? Yeah. So those are two very good questions. I will <laughs> definitely write more, am writing more. Uh, what I do next is uh, almost as much of a mystery to me as it is to everybody else. Um, I have many things in the hopper, but um, I just have to decide what the next right step for me is. And as for Molly, I don't know, she may reappear. Uh, but for me, what is most important is to leave the reader wanting more and only give them more if I can fulfill what I've done with this first book. I don't want to give them less, in other words. So if I can figure out that conundrum, then there will be more Molly. And if I can't, then there will be something else. That's entirely fair. <laughs> That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, I've loved talking to you. The book is delightful. I just have one final question, which is what do you hope readers take away from reading The Maid? Uh, you know, I hope you really do get to experience life as Molly and that that you see um, how, you know, some of those struggles that service workers um, feel. And my hope is that if you live for a while as her, then you learn to love her. And finally, hope is something that is really important for me, for the reader to take away when that last page is turned. Wonderful. Nita, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jill. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.